Welcome to another episode of our Six Questions podcast. I'm Trent England with Save Our States, and I hope you've been enjoying our sort of best of six questions for the last couple of weeks. The Save Our States team has been out all around the country. We were in Denver and Atlanta and Las Vegas uh, just for work. I, I promise you that, uh, especially when it's, you know, 115 degrees out there and, uh, and in Dallas at conferences, meeting with grassroots activists and with legislators and legislative staff and other folks uh, sharing the information that we share all the time uh, about the importance of the Electoral College, the danger of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Of course, all of that and all of the handouts that we use at all of those meetings are available at SaveOurStates.com. You can find all those resources there under our resources tab. So uh, easy to find and uh, download all of those materials. If you missed us at one of those conferences, uh, all of that is there as well as contact information. We'd love to partner with you to defend the Electoral College and the integrity of presidential elections. Today, I am excited to welcome to our Six Questions podcast, Curtis Shelton. I've known Curtis for uh, a long time. Curtis is with the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs He's a great uh, a podcast host in his own right of the Thinking on Lincoln podcast, which is actually not a podcast about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, we'll ask we'll ask Curtis why it's called Thinking on Lincoln uh, in a in a moment here. But he is a policy research fellow at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs. Does a lot of writing on economic policy in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, but he's just a he's a great insightful thinker, and I'm very glad Curtis to welcome you to Six Questions. Yeah, thanks, Trent. Glad to be here. It's exciting. Yeah. So let's start off with your podcast. People should find Thinking on Lincoln, uh, where uh, you know wherever they stream their podcasts and subscribe and listen. Uh, you know, e- even though it's focused on Oklahoma, I think there's a lot there that would be interesting to folks wherever they are. But uh, you you host uh, you co-host that with Ryan Haney, also of the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs. Tell us the idea behind the podcast and you know how you come came to uh, be a host of, of Thinking on Lincoln. Yeah, I mean the the general idea was basically to try to put out some maybe longer form content. A lot of what OCPA does is um, through the written form, basically um, either a quick social media post or longer form articles. I know anybody who's familiar with OCPA is certainly familiar with Ray Carter, who does a ton of journalism for us, but we thought reach a different audience with a different format. Um, so the content's a little bit different than what we usually do. It's kind of um, a lot of interviews. And then Ryan and I, the co- my, my co-host, um, it's kind of more philosophical in a sense. It's not so much rigorous, you know, research or journalism. It's more kind of what you consider a podcast to be kind of just a conversation between Ryan and I and whoever the guest is that we think um, has something to offer. It is generally focused on Oklahoma policy and politics, um, but we've had guests like Will Kane, um, Jason Willock on as well. Um, so we we do branch out every so often. Um, the name uh, came from, so OCPA is on uh, Lincoln Boulevard, which happens to be the same street as the Capitol, um, which is on 23rd in Lincoln. We're just 10 blocks south. Um, so that's where the name came up, came from. We we haven't yet had an Abraham Lincoln special, but we probably should because I just I think just about everybody assumes the podcast is just some giant uh, homage to Abraham Lincoln, which it has, hasn't been, but, uh, maybe it should, I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, people, sometimes people even in Oklahoma don't realize, you know, 23rd and Lincoln is sort of shorthand for the state capital. And, uh, and as you said, OCPA is, is just 10 blocks South also on Lincoln. So, uh, it's kind of an, you know, an, in, an inside reference, but, uh, but also makes a lot of sense. So, so Curtis, I, I want to ask you in just a minute, 
how you know you're you're a uh, you're a relatively young guy. People are always talking about you know we need more young people to be involved in in politics, and people aren't paying attention. But I want to ask you a question that, that maybe leads into that. I'm not sure, uh, and and uh, that's about school choice. One of OCPA's major agenda items is school choice. You see conservatives talking about this from coast to coast. West Virginia, Arizona have been at the forefront of expanding school choice. We've, we've made some gains in Oklahoma as well. I actually think this is really important to the fight that, that I'm engaged in protecting the Electoral College, but why, why is school choice so important uh, you know, in general and in Oklahoma for OCPA? Yeah, well, I mean, I think just about every facet of society kind of comes down to education. I know that might sound like a cliche a little bit. You hear that all the time about how important the kids are and how important the next generation is, but it's true. And I think a lot of that boils down to between the ages of, you know, five, six to 17, you spend more of your time at school than you do really anywhere else, especially if you're in sports, you know, you're either with teachers or coaches basically your entire life up until you either graduate, go to college or start your career in whatever field you feel like. So making sure that we provide a quality education is super important. And particularly in Oklahoma for the last, you know, two or three decades, maybe longer. I've, I'm only 27. So basically my entire lifetime, um, the standards probably haven't been quite what most people would want them to be. I think that's been admitted really by whether it's parents, administrators, teachers. I think everybody kind of understands that Oklahoma um, in most respects hasn't um, been up to par on academic performances. I know some people have issue with testing and things like that. Um, but that's why school choice is so important because it's clear that the, the system hasn't um, adequately prepared people for what it, it's supposed to be doing. And there are other options out there for parents, whether that's charter schools, private schools, homeschooling. Um, the issue is there's a lot of barriers to that. And so school choice opens up um, a lot more options for parents and for students by basically giving them the option to not have to go to school based off of where they live, but based off of the needs that they have and them choosing the school that best feeds the, meets those needs. Yeah. Make, makes sense to me. I mean, conservatives uh, know that competition is how you get accountability, efficiency, and in the end, excellence. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been fascinating to me, you know, having moved to Oklahoma just eight years ago, that there's a lot of resistance to that based on the idea that, well, it's going to upset the apple cart for some of our school districts that are all chronically underperforming. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's amazing. You've done great work, you know, exposing that, that, uh, you know, you look at all these districts and, you know, I mean, there, there are very few districts in the state that are performing anywhere near their own standards and their own standards are probably pretty low. So, so Curtis, you, as you said, I mean, you're, you're 27, you grew up in Oklahoma, you have wound up working for a conservative think tank in Oklahoma City. How did that happen? That, that's, uh, you know, that's a very unusual uh, thing for, for anybody your age to be, to be engaged in politics, but to be engaged in public policy to that level, that's, that's pretty amazing. I'm sure there's some parents out there who would like to know, you know, how, how do you make sure that young people not only remain conservative, but, but actually get engaged in that way? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know if my story is something that's super repeatable just because it was very uh, fortuitous a little bit. I'll try to keep it relatively brief, but I think a lot of it started my sophomore year of college. Um, one of my roommates, who's just a better person than I am, as evidenced by this story, 
for spring break, he planned a trip for all of us to go to Chicago, um, not to, you know, hang out and see the sightseeing, but he had uh, been in contact with a ministry out there who had been doing a lot of work on the south side of Chicago, um, just with that community. So we spent a, basically the entire week down there learning about what the, what it is that they're doing. And there was, it's, it's, it was basically at the time, I don't know if it's grown since then, but it was this one guy and his family basically who decided to transplant his entire family. He had an older son and then two kids in elementary school to the South side of Chicago, just to understand what that community needed. And he thought the best way to understand what they need is to live with them and be in a community with them um, full time. So throughout that week, we learned about what they were doing, whether it was opening up a coffee shop to help those people find jobs and get job training on the job training experience throughout that they were providing um, childcare, whether that was through uh, after school ministry programs or places for the kids to go after school to, you know, to have somewhere to, to be safe and to have something fun to do as well. Um, they were also doing a lot of homeless outreach. We visited a homeless shelter out there um, and they did something that I thought was super uh, unique. Each week they would go out into the city with a two sack lunches and go um, try to find someone who's living on the street and not just give them something, but ask they can eat lunch with them. So it's, it was, a, it was really the whole, the whole weekend was about how can we really help these people and the only way to know how to really help these people is to be in community with them. And throughout that week, um, it kind of opened my eyes about how, one, complicated it is to really help people who may be uh, less fortunate than us. It's not so much just giving them things. That was one of the, the main takeaways that we got from the homeless shelter. We talked to so many people there who had been living in there and who now worked there. And they said the experience of getting to, to feel a value, um, to basically go through that process to be given the, the homeless shelter met needs that they needed, but they also gave them an avenue to kind of reach beyond just their basic needs, right? It gave them an opportunity to maybe develop a skill and to use that skill and how important that was to kind of regain some of that dignity. Um, I'm sure a few people here know this, but one of the the biggest factors about prolonged homelessness is that it creates this, this such an extreme anxiety that so many people who may have not had mental illness before they were homeless develop some sort of mental illness because of all the, the anxiety they're reaching. So that, again, makes the, the problem super complicated. And just kind of seeing all of that and seeing the various ways that they were helping kind of inspired me to think, I want to do something like this. I wasn't really sure. I was, you know, still an idealistic college kid. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, but that kind of set me on the path of doing something nonprofit related, something maybe poverty related. Um, fast forward a little bit to my senior year, I ended up basically pulling a Thomas book off the shelf of a friend's bookshelf. I don't think he had even read it yet but it was uh, wealth, poverty, and politics for those who are wondering. Um, I was studying finance and economics at the time. Uh, I had a lot of off time my senior year, my second semester, I'd been planning on going to law school. I didn't have class Thursday, Fridays, so I was just reading a lot those days. Um, and reading that book kind of showed me a way to apply what I wanted to do with what I was learning. Um, so that had been a struggle for me was how can I, I didn't want to do, you know, investment stuff. I didn't want to do a ton of just basic economic research. Um, I wanted to help people, but I didn't know how my skills could really um, help that. And reading that book showed me how important economics is to understanding not just what the problems are, but maybe some solutions to those problems and not only the solutions, but um, looking at how some of our attempts at solving those problems really hurt. A lot of that book talked about um, 
community up until the 1950s. And you saw that really taper off after the civil rights movement, which is something that I never heard about before. It was really eye-opening to see just how much government intervention, as well-intentioned as it might've been, hasn't seemed to provide the answer that they were looking for. Um, and then lastly, so that kind of opened my eyes to, all right, I can actually do something to help people with an economics degree, not just be some number cruncher. And then I actually ended up talking to you and Jonathan after I graduated. Um, I was touring OU Law actually, and you all gave me a book, uh, The Conservative Heart by Arthur Brooks. And that was really the last uh, straw for what I wanted to do. Uh, one, it opened my eyes to what think tanks are. I didn't really know what a think tank was at the time. So just talking to you guys and then reading that book showed, again, the importance of dignity for human beings and how work can be it's not just a means to an end, it actually provides a way for human beings to feel valued and pro to provide the value for others, which is something that all of us, whether we understand it or not, need. And most of us do that through work. Obviously, it's not the only way for anybody who's staying at home caring for their kids can find immense value in that as well, obviously. Um, that's arguably more important than any job that we're gonna do um, in our careers. But that was, basically showed me, okay, this is an actual path I can do. Thankfully, you all gave me an internship after I visited with you all. And um, from there, we ended up here. Yeah. Sorry if that's a long explanation, but. It's good. No, it's good. And I, and I think, I mean, I think there's a piece of that that, you know, you, you prefaced it by saying you don't know how replicable it is. And obviously, every, everyone's story is, you know, in, in a certain sense, anecdotal. But I do think that that idea of seeing how other people live and understanding human complexity in the context of trying to help people solve problems, right? I mean, this is where the left just utterly fails because it, it, it's all about good intentions and, uh, and sort of, you know, I think, I think in, in the politics on the left, it becomes about sort of quantifying good intentions, which oftentimes is about giving people stuff and, uh, you know, and, and then, I mean, you know, pushed, uh, you know, pushed a little farther. I mean, sometimes like, like in education, I, it seems like the, the people who are giving people stuff, you know, when they get their way and they ratchet up education funding is, you know, as far as they say they need to, and then they don't get the results they want, then they turn around and sort of blame the, the people they're providing it to. These families are no good. These kids are no good. You know, um, or, you know, it just turns out that it costs, it always costs a little bit more. Uh, and I, I do, th I think the kind of practical experience that you described is the anecdote, the, the antidote uh, to all of, to all of that. And, uh, you know, it's just helping people understand how, how complex these, these problems are. Uh, you know, one of the complex problems of the moment in Oklahoma and more so in, in other states across the country is inflation there's a lot of talk about how you address inflation with, you know, people talking about cutting taxes, raising taxes, increasing government spending. Uh, I mean, Curtis, what do you make of all of that? And in particular, you know, it looks like Congress is going to raise taxes. And there are, are people saying that that's a way to fight inflation because it's pulling money out of the economy. I mean, what's, what's your answer to, to all that? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest frustration I've had with the inflation debate has ha been how authoritative people have been about saying this is exactly what's been causing inflation. Um, but in reality, it's basically been all the things people have talked about, right? It's the pandemic suppressed demand to such a level that it was clearly 
not going to be sustained for long term. The supply chain issue clearly affected it during the pandemic and now afterwards. And then the government spending, like you talked about, all three of those factors have led to inflation. Um, whether it's the Biden administration trying to blame strictly supply chain, which is clearly wrong, or whether it's people on the right like us who sometimes try to maybe put too much weight on what the federal government has done, which it has done a lot to create inflation, but it's not the sole source. Um, but yeah, and this to get where we're, basically what it feels like the government's doing is we've made a problem and the only way to fix that is to kind of dig deeper in the hole almost is what it feels like to me. Um, the insane spending, whether that was Trump with the CARES Act, the American Rescue Plan, basically gave people a bunch of money that they weren't spending. You know, there was nowhere to go with that money. Obviously, some people needed assistance, right? People who maybe lost their jobs and couldn't make mortgage payments. Um, I had no problem with the government providing for them because the reason they lost their jobs is because the government shut down their place of work, right? So if you tell people they can't work and then tell them they also aren't going to get anything to help pay their mortgages feels like a bad thing. But to send it out to everybody to have not only just sending checks to people, but inflating state government, spend local governments as well. Um, just the massive influx of cash. Everybody said it was going to lead to inflation. It seemed like people kind of ignored that. Um, and we're hopeful that once the pandemic ended, you know, supply chains are going to crank back up and we're going to be fine. Obviously it didn't happen. So now here we are um, looking at maybe raising taxes, basically looking for government to again, provide the solution. Like I talked about before, it's not always about just giving people, things they need. If you really want to combat inflation, um, it's going to be hard. It's going to have to take long-term approaches, but obviously the Fed's going to do what they're going to do as far as trying to, to tamper back the economy, which isn't necessarily ideal. Obviously, you don't, people don't want recession to happen, um, but the only other way to, to really deal with the inflation problem is to increase productivity. And the best way to do that is actually through cutting taxes, not through increasing taxes, right? Um, the more things yeah. cost, the less people buy. Yeah. Um, and taxes invariably make things cost more, right? So if you're going to increase the cost of doing business for businesses, they're going to be doing less business, um, which is exactly what happened with the supply chain problem. You're going to be producing less goods and the demand's not going to go away. Yeah. So, well, yeah. And, and government, I mean, they're, they're not saying in DC that they want to raise taxes to take money out of the economy, they're saying they want to raise taxes and spend all that money back into the economy. So it just, it, it seems like a, like a strange claim to make that somehow, you know, tax increases to fund spending programs would have some, you know, systemic effect on, on inflation. You mentioned tax cuts. Talking here with Curtis Shelton on our Six Questions podcast. This is question number five, Curtis. There are, I think, nine states that currently have no personal income tax I know that OCPA is pushing for Oklahoma to become the 10th state. Why is that? Why is that important? What do you see going on in these other states? Obviously, I'm, you know, I'm milking my fifth question for all I can, can get out of it. But uh, Curtis Shelton, tax cuts in, uh, in Oklahoma and around the country at the state level, what do you think? Yeah, well, it's like I, I just got finished saying the best way to increase productivity is through tax cuts primarily. Um, at least for the government side of things. Um, I know a lot of people like to point to Kansas uh, back in 2012 when they tried to implement some massive income tax as kind of the, the post trial for how it's going to go wrong. Um, 
interestingly enough, since that, I think 24 or 25 states have implemented some sort of income tax cut since then. So for all the damage Kansas seemed to have done to itself, nobody seemed to think that was a bad idea. 25 states have done it since. Uh, last year, 10 states uh, had some sort of income tax reduction. Um, the reason the income tax is such a harmful tax is that it taxes work. It taxes productivity. Um, like I said, the more you tax something, the more it costs, the less people do it. It's usually not a good thing to have less people working. Um, that usually tends to lead to a less productive economy. So to limit the income tax, um, research is kind of uh, conclusive that it's going to spur the economy. I, the Tax Foundation just did kind of a meta-analysis on, I think it was, I mean, it was double digit. I can't remember the number of papers. It was double digit papers. And I think all but one of them showed a positive effect on whether it was reducing the actual rate, making the income tax less uh, progressive, um, and uh, basically lowering the, the number of tax brackets. But really, any kind of income tax reform that we proposed um, has benefited the economy by, by and large. And anecdotally, you see it um, across the country, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, even Washington, all the states that have, don't have an income tax have for the last two decades really have an outgrowing, not just high tax states, but all states. Um, obviously high tax states have suffered the most. California, New York, Connecticut have seen huge amounts of wealth uh, leave those states. And they primarily left to states like Florida, Texas, and, and others. And if Oklahoma wants to continue to compete, not only to compete better with Texas, who is our primary economic competitor, but the rest of the states across the country, we're going to have to seriously look at um, some sort of income tax reform. I'm for the last few years, we've been, you know, advocating for really any kind of tax or any kind of income tax. Happy with that. Um, I'm starting to get nervous that because we had 10 states do a cut last year, there's a ton of momentum for a lot of states to get down to zero. So I think if Oklahoma waits too long, we might actually not see as much benefit out of it as we could if we're one of the early adopters. Um, all the research is pretty clear. Giving people more control over their own money tends to be a better idea than letting government control the spending. Um, throughout history, we've seen that. We've, we're seeing that right now. We just talked about all the inflation problems that are primarily exacerbated through government spending. So reducing income tax not only makes people more productive, it also limits government spending in a way that is really hard to do. Really, you have two options. You have to trust lawmakers to keep themselves in control, which is really not something that you can do, um, not for long term, at least, or you can take away some of their revenue through tax cuts. So I think it's kind of a win-win for most taxpayers. Yeah, I, I want to ask you a, a question, uh, 5.1, about Kansas. I, I, I think, I want to get your reaction to this, because I think part of what happened in Kansas, and I think this happens in other states sometimes when they cut taxes, especially with the income tax, that, you know, Curtis, you're very smart. So, you know, you, you made a couple of statements and you understand exactly what you mean. But I think sometimes when people hear we can cut the income tax and we will, by doing that, we will spur economic growth. You get this other kind of claim, which can be true in extreme cases, which is we're going to cut income taxes and government, because of economic growth, government will bring in just as much money as, as they would have before, which, you know, I mean, if income taxes, when you've got rates that are like 70% or something crazy like that, like we actually have seen in past history, you know, you take those rates down to 30% and, and you probably, you've got the Laffer curve effect 
Um, but, but you get some, some either unscrupulous politicians on the right or, you know, dare I say it, I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and just say really ignorant <laughs> politicians on the right. It's always, you know, it's always nice. It sounds worse, but it's always nicer to accuse politicians of just not knowing what they're talking about. Uh, who say, oh, no, we're going to cut it, cut income taxes and we're going to bring in more money. And I, I, I mean, is that what happened in Kansas? They just overpromised and then and then, you know, walked into a, a fiscal disaster. I, I, do I have that? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, I think it's like you mentioned the Laffer curve. I think it's just a misunderstanding of the Laffer curve. Um, small economic yeah. lesson for those who may not understand. It's basically a back of the napkin, you know, uh, theory on what happens when you cut taxes. Right. On one hand, you have a zero percent tax rate. You're bringing in no money. On the other end, you have a hundred percent tax rate, meaning no one's going to work because they're not going to make any money. And then you have this big curve, right? Um, which in theory shows that if you cut taxes, you're actually gonna get more money, which is what you mentioned. Um, it's just, that's in all reality, that's not how it actually works. What usually happens when you cut taxes, you do have economic growth, but it's not going to be enough growth to overcome all the lost government revenue um, through the tax cut. It may, you know, over a long stretch, eventually you may get there, um, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, but Kansas kind of assumed, oh, and you know, year one, two, and three, we're gonna have, even more revenue than we did before. Um, they had, I know, I don't want to get in the weeds too much. They had some education funding issues as well, where they were have to crank up their spending anyways. Plus they were kind of banking on more revenue. So the spending was way out of touch with what they actually brought in um, in revenue based off of some pretty flawed assumptions about what would happen. Um, they also had some poorly designed income tax. I, I, I don't want to misconstrue the details too much, but basically the way they treated pass-through uh, corporations uh, wasn't an ideal approach um, to where they're basically favoring one uh, corporate structure over another, which you never want to do with tax, the tax code. You never want to favor one thing over another if you can help it. Um, so there's a lot of flaws with what Kansas did, primarily, like you mentioned, assuming tax cuts lead to enough growth to overcome the revenue losses is usually not a good way to go about it. A better way to think about it is a lot of people who are critics of tax cuts say it's going to bleed the state dry. In reality, you're going to see enough growth to make those losses um, less drastic than the critics may point to, but you're most likely, unless you do some, unless you have a crazy, crazy tax rate, like perhaps California may see something like that. Um, well, I say that I doubt it because they're, they, uh, they just have such a big state budget, but you'd have to have an incredibly high tax rate to actually see kind of the laugh curve effect um, take effect. Yeah. Yeah. These, these politicians talk about it like it's in, in some cases, in the case of Kansas, like it's the Laffer line rather than the right. Laffer curve, right? <laughs> like if it's a curve, then like you can be on the side where you cut taxes and get more revenue, but you can also be on the side where you cut taxes and get less revenue. I mean, that's, that's the nature of it being a curve. So I don't, you know, right. it, again, uh, I think some of these politicians just don't, they hear what they want to hear and then they repeat that and then they right. get into trouble. I think, is, I think you hear the words economic growth and you just assume, oh, like the economy grew, so the state yeah. government should grow as well. And it's like, that's not quite how it works. But So talking with Curtis Shelton here on our Six Questions podcast, he is a policy research fellow at the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs and the co-host of Thinking on Lincoln, a podcast about politics and public policy in the great state of Oklahoma, not about Lincoln. It's just the state capitals on Lincoln. So, uh, so you can find Thinking on Lincoln, subscribe, listen, share, 
Uh, it's a it's a great podcast. A lot of interesting guests on there. So, Curtis, our last question on six questions is always, who is your favorite founding father and why? Yeah, I don't know if this is disappoint some people, but it won't be Lincoln. Um, he was a great president. Uh, I I read one of his biographies actually about a year or two ago. Super enjoyable. But this is boring. But I'm going to say Washington. Um, I just I again this is based off of maybe how much information I know about the different presidents. But his his kind of rise to where he ended up I think is one of the most interesting. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know that he got a ton of his wealth because a lot of his relatives died. Right. A lot of kind of his early maybe prosperity was through a lot of the tragedy, which I think shaped him in a way that I think is super interesting. Um, and also kind of made him at least a little bit more aware of his place in the world that not a lot of our other, more, maybe more ambitious founding fathers had, maybe some of, some of it did. Hamilton obviously saw a lot of that as well. Um, and I also think the, the enduring legacy of a man at a time who stepped away from power when no one else would even consider that um, I mean, you're seeing that even nowadays with um, all sorts of different leaders in various countries who seem to not want to go away. Um, and we think we've progressed so far and we're so more morally superior than the people in the past. But this is a man who came from a culture of kings, right, who lived their entire lives and then their sons would take over after them. Um, and he walked away from it, basically, as the most popular president we've ever had. And I think a lot of us. We, we celebrate that every year, right? Every time we have a new president come in, we kind of celebrate Washington's legacy in effect. But I don't think we really understand what that actually meant at the time to see somebody step away from how much power and how much control he had. Um, feels to me like the kind of it was it was just bigger than him. I don't think he even really understood the impact it was going to have. I mean, I know he did to a degree, but I don't think he could have really seen this far in advance. And I think his legacies. Um, kind of speak for themselves in that. And it's hard for me to maybe put someone above him. Yeah. No, I think that's, uh, that makes sense to me. Washington was the, the indispensable man. I mean, no one founding a Republic wasn't uh, just about all the words that they wrote. I think, you know, sometimes we focus so much on the constitution and, you know, I love the Federalist papers and all those things, but ultimately the, the actions really do speak louder than words. And it, it took the actions of a man like Washington to bring all that into effect. So yeah, it makes hey, sense to me. It, yeah. It is interesting too seeing a man who really had no formal education at all, leading people like Jefferson, Hamilton, Adams, yeah. Madison, who, the, you know, these intellectual giants and here's, you know, Washington who basically self-taught in every way is, their superior basically in, in every way you can imagine for the most part. Yeah. So. Curtis Shelton of the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs and the Think on Lincoln podcast. Thanks so much for being a part of Six Questions. Yeah. Thanks, Trent. And thanks to all of you for watching and listening. Remember, you can uh, subscribe to this podcast in any place that podcasts are commonly available. Please share it on social media. Please go to our website, saveourstates.com. The power of what we do to defend the electoral college and the integrity of our system of federalism, our presidential elections, it is just the power of all the people who are connected with us, who find our resources, learn about the best ways to defend the electoral college, whether that's by sharing information with the young people around you, whether that's by reaching out and contacting your state legislators, 
Uh, certainly be paying attention as we move toward the election in November. We're going to have a lot of brand new state legislators. They will need to hear from you. We'll talk about that on future episodes and certainly on our Save Our State social media pages. So please be connected with us there as well. I'm Trent England. Thanks for watching.